right, here we go. Good morning. That music makes me want to dance, but there is nothing that could turn you off to the gospel of Jesus Christ faster than me dancing to music that sounds like that. My name is Landon. I'm a pastor here at this church. I want to talk to you today about family conflict. Before we do that, I want to pray a little bit together as a church about the shootings that have happened around our country over the past few weeks in California, in Texas, and in Buffalo. And I'm in and on some of the circles on the internet where they mock the idea of Christians uh, thinking about and praying for people who've been hurt, uh, wounded, and had their lives destroyed. And that is not true. We believe um, that prayers move the hand of God, and God is the most powerful being in the universe. And so uh, prayers do matter. They do move God. God does allow us to move him by faith. And so we are going to continue to do that. Would you join me in prayer right now? God, we're praying that you would be with the brokenhearted and save the crushed in spirit. You say, God, in your word that you are near to those who've had their hearts broken. There are certainly many in our country who've had their hearts broken in the last month. Would you be near to them like you said that you would? Then you say, God, that you save the crushed in, the, in spirit. Would you save them, God? They need, sa they need saving. They need salvation through Jesus Christ if they have not already received it. Would you do that, God? Would you not allow things like this, Father, to divide the body of Christ any more than it's already been divided? Could we unify in our desire to have compassion and love toward those who have been hurt? Could we put aside anything that is political and unite together under the cross of Christ that we love those who are hurting like Christ has loved us? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. We're talking about family. We're doing a series called Squad Goals, which sounds like something Chevy Chase would say to his family before they, before they sighed in the back of a wood-paneled minivan on some godforsaken highway in the Midwest. This is the week about family conflict, family drama, family trauma, we all probably have some of it. Anybody an expert in family conflict want to raise their hand? No? Okay. Anybody want to start some family conflict? Because, you know, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, good Lord, I wish my mother-in-law was here, you could send a quick text and tell her about the 11.55 a.m. service, and that would probably start some family conflict here in about 30 to 45 seconds. So that's, that's available to you. We all have some of it. And if you think that your family does not have any conflict, then I would suggest to you that there might be a separate family text thread without you in it. Maybe. Family conflict is such a popular and common experience on Reddit, there is a thread called relationships where people ask strangers to help them work through problems in their family. That thread has 3.2 million followers in it. There's another thread called raised by narcissists, which I know the boomers are thinking it's gotta be all millennials in that thread. And from what I've read, I think you're right. I think it is pretty much only. There are 789,000 people in that thread there's a thread called Kids Are Stupid. <laughs> um, and the top post in that thread is this picture. 
There's another version of the thread called Kids Are Blank Stupid with a curse word in it. That one has 2.9 million people that are on that thread working on the conflict that their children cause in their family, and people are looking to the internet to help them solve conflict, which is exactly what I want you to help me solve right now, because I have had a conflict with my dad for 20 years, and I need you to help me solve it, okay? There is this movie called Tommy Boy from the 1990s. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's very funny. And in it, there is a sequence that I'm going to show you on the screen right now in a GIF format, so there's no audio or anything. They're just going to play it repeatedly. Now, there's a part of this clip where Chris Farley puts his hand right up to his mouth. And since the 1990s, my dad have had the same argument. When he puts his hand up to his mouth, is he making a cigar? Is he, is he going like this and pulling a cigar out of his mouth? Or is he holding his hand up to his mouth to imitate having a mustache? My dad and I have been arguing about this since the late 1990s. And I won't tell you which one my point of view is. You can go into it just totally clean. Now, on my Instagram, I have a poll right now where you can vote between cigar or mustache. And I, you could just type in my name, Landon McDonald. It's in the stories. You could really help me because it's looking like really good in my favor from the stats from the first service. So just vote. Go ahead. Take a second and vote. I would love nothing more than to call my dad on the way home from church today. Say, Dad, what a great service. The Lord was present. And something was decided. A word was given. You were wrong. And you could potentially help me do that. That would be great if you would help me do that really quick. Everybody has family conflict. Some family conflict is funny. Obviously, some is not. I would say that all families fall into one of these three categories with the way that they deal with conflict. Family number one aggressively fights through the conflict and then ignores it. Now, usually the way that families solve conflict is based on which person in the family is most dominant and the way they want to solve conflict. So it could be one of the parents or it could be one of the children if they're grown or if the parents let that take place. So if the person that's the most dominant in the family is aggressive, meaning that when there's a conflict, they want to have it, they want to get loud, they want to fight, they want to get it all worked out or whatever and get angry, then typically the way that that family solves conflict is by aggressively fighting through it and then ignoring it. The thing that is really bad there is oftentimes when the aggressive person feels like it's solved because they've expelled all the anger they want to expel, anyone who's Passover wired differently feels like they're just getting started and then it's kind of over, and that can snowball into a lot more conflict over time. Family number two is the passive-aggressive family. Do you know what passive-aggressive people are like and do? I'm sure you do. Passive-aggressive people, they let out their anger, too. They just do it in a different way. They let it out indirectly instead of directly. So an aggressive person would yell at you. A passive-aggressive person would do something to intentionally irritate you. They would leave clothes on the floor if that's something that irritates you over time, and that's how they would let out their anger. And if the person in the family that's the most dominant is passive-aggressive, they or your family may be wired and uh, solve conflict like this ignore the conflict, and then passive-aggressively fight over time, which is not a good way of solving it. The third way, of course, is the way that we're looking for, the way that we all want to live as we seek to follow Jesus Christ. 
which is to have the conflict God's way. Now, sometimes Christians think that it's godly not to have conflict because we've decided that when Jesus says be kind, what he actually means is be nice, and we've decided that be nice means ignore my needs in favor of not having a conflict. That's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Read one of the Gospels. Jesus has a large amount of conflict all the time. And what Jesus does is what we're seeking to do, which is enter into the conflict and solve it the way that the Bible teaches us how to solve it. And this can have generational impact on your family as you choose to solve conflict God's way. And so that's the title of the sermon, Five Choices to Have Conflict God's Way. So instead of ignoring it or instead of yelling about it, how can we do conflict in our family the way that God wants us to do it, and how can we get through that well together? Are we in? Are we in on this? That's the sermon. All right. Choice number one, you could choose this today, and I believe it would have a positive effect on your family. Choice number one, we will have honest conflict. The Bible says in Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. The old self is a common thing the New Testament says. It just is the old version of you, the version in college that drank too much, the version in your 20s that did this or that before you knew Christ. And the Bible teaches us that that version of us is still around, and we have to choose each day to put off the old self and put on the new self. The new self is Christ empowered by his Holy Spirit. So what we're being taught here is don't lie. Don't say anything that's not true, specifically in our context of uh, family conflict, because that is the old you. Don't lie because that's the old you. Rather be the new you which tells the truth. And I've got to tell you that one of the most common ways people lie in conflict is by saying that the conflict doesn't exist. When someone says, are you irritated, and you say, no, but the answer is that you are, or the answer is that you haven't processed it enough, or the answer is that you don't want to talk about it because it doesn't usually go well, or the answer is dot, dot, dot. The truth is that when we tell the truth in conflict, we get to a much better place in it. I'm surprised at how much people don't tell the truth now in society, and I'm surprised at how shocked people are when you do candidly tell the truth, especially to strangers. I went to a coffee shop a couple weeks ago, and uh, I was ordering a cup of coffee, and the barista held out a container of hand sanitizer and said to me, here. And I said, okay, do I look like I'm dirty? And he said, yes. And I said, okay. One coffee, please. And as he was ringing me up, he said, was that rude? And I said, yes, it was. <laughs> and my friend said, why did you say that to him? And I said, because it was true. I'm amazed at how shocking it is sometimes when people just tell the truth to each other. Now, outside of a funny context and inside of a real context, it is proven and the Bible teaches us that when you tell the truth, you have better conflict. It doesn't mean all of the truth all the time. It doesn't mean you say every single thing you've ever felt in every conflict. 
using the truth in a good, healthy, righteous way will make a difference. And secular psychologists have noticed this as well. There's a non-Christian book called Radical Candor that has tested what happens when people in a work context just calmly and repeatedly tell the truth. When their boss says, does that bother you? They say, yes, it does. Can we work it out? When the person below them says, I am frustrated with you, they say, I am frustrated with you too. Let's work it out. And they tracked how people actually really like people that tell the truth because they see over time, so many people don't tell the truth, but with that person, I can get the truth. Now, that's not the reason why we do those things, but it is good to know that when we obey the things in the Bible, good things happen, specifically in our family. Here's number two, we will have gracious conflict. So the first one is, we will choose to have honest conflict, and then number two, we will have gracious conflict. It says in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So what he's going for here is that first of all, we would have no corrupting talk. That is a word that means rotten. We're not gonna say things that are rotten. We're not gonna let those types of things come out of our mouth, but rather we are going to say things that build up as it fits the occasion, which is great because we're talking about a specific occasion today, which is family conflict. So in family conflict, we don't say things that are rotten. We say things that build up for this occasion. What does it mean to say something that builds up and it fits the occasion? It means to speak with grace. Christians oftentimes get mercy and grace confused. I don't know if you ever have. Mercy is getting something you don't deserve. Grace is not getting something you do deserve. The cross is God's mercy to you. Jesus sacrifices giving you something that you do not deserve. Avoiding hell is God's grace to you. It's you not getting something that you do deserve. And when you choose in your life to speak to people with graciousness, which means not giving them what they do deserve, you are choosing something that will be so powerful in your family for generations. You are choosing to say, I do not have to talk to people the way that they have talked to me. I do not have to treat people the way that my body or mind says that I should. I can treat people based off of the way that Christ treats me. It might feel like when someone is angry with you that they deserve anger back and they do deserve anger back, but you don't have to give it because grace. It might feel like when someone's rude to you that they deserve rudeness back, and they do deserve rudeness back, but you don't have to give it because grace. It might feel like when someone's bitter towards you that you should be bitter back to them because they deserve it, and they do deserve it, but you don't have to give it because grace. When someone sends a passive-aggressive text to you, everything in your body, and especially your thumbs, might be feeling like it's time to send a passive-aggressive text back to that person, but you don't have to do it because grace. And the more familiar you are with the grace that Jesus has given to you, the easier it is to give grace to other people. The more time you spend meditating on and recognizing God each day gives me what I don't deserve. Life, family, love, a purpose. The more time you spend meditating on the graces that you have received, the easier it is to give grace to others. And when it comes to conflict, gracious words will solve it really fast. When someone just lets out something and they're angry 
and everything in you is like, I gotta, I gotta match that, or I'm not a man, or I gotta match that, or I'm not. You don't have to. You can respond with grace and show Christ to that person and solve the conflict quicker. You could choose as a family, we're gonna talk graciously with each other. We're gonna be honest and we're gonna be gracious. The third one, we will have temporary conflict. We will have temporary conflict. We're not going to let this go on forever. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Did you know that anger is not sin? The Bible says in the Psalms that God is a God who is angry every single day. God gets angry every day when he looks down at the world and sees what a disaster so much of it is. He has a lot of emotions. One of them is anger. Just because you're angry does not mean that you're sinning, but anger oftentimes leads to sin. It's not wrong as a parent to be angry that your son or daughter is rebelling against you. It's not wrong as a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law to be angry that your mother-in-law is ignoring you or ignoring your kids. In fact, it's normal to feel angry about those things, and it's okay to feel angry about those things, so long as we don't let our anger cause us to what? Sin, that's right. Then it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, which a lot of people have taken to mean don't go to bed angry, which is a good thing and you shouldn't do it, but that's not what it's saying. It isn't saying don't go to bed angry. It's saying don't allow yourself to be angry for longer than it takes for the sun to go down. That's a good amount of time for you in health to be angry about something that has angered you. A couple of, how long does it take for the sun to go down? A couple hours. Don't let yourself be angry longer than that. In family conflict, we're not Buddhists. We're not trying to ignore our emotions. We're not trying to act like our emotions aren't real. We're not trying to act like life isn't real and be this Zen version of something. That's not what the Bible teaches. We experience anger and that's okay, but we don't let it make us sin and we don't let it go on for too long. So if your son is rebelling against you and you are justifiably and appropriately angry, Give yourself an amount of time to feel angry about that and then say, that's enough. For the rest of the day, I'm going to choose to be thankful for the things about my son that are wonderful. I'm going to choose to be gracious with him for the rest of the day. We don't deny our emotions, but we don't let our emotions take us over. A great example of that is these horrific shootings that have happened. When we see something like that, does it not make us angry? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But we don't scroll all day, right? Like, it would be obvious to you that if you spent all day reading articles about that, that would not be good for your heart, right? This is the same type of thing that is being taught. We allow ourselves to be angry for a certain amount of time, and then we choose to let it go. That's number three. Number four, we will have resolved conflict. Some conflicts last forever. Some conflicts are generational. Some of us have a list of three to four things that we know each Thanksgiving is going to end with someone talking about one of these things. That's not good. And dads, fathers, grandfathers, it's our responsibility to lead our homes in a different way than that. It says in Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. That's a pretty high... Uh, thing to match up to, forgive like Jesus forgave. 
That's like saying, play basketball like LeBron James, invent like Steve Jobs. Do the thing that the person that is the best at is the best at in the way that they are the best at it. Forgive like Jesus forgave. Jesus forgives immediately, Jesus forgives completely, and Jesus forgives permanently. And those things are all in their own way exceptionally hard, are they not? Jesus forgives immediately when we ask him. Jesus forgives completely, all of it, even the little part that we didn't understand was wrong or forgot to say. And Jesus forgives permanently, meaning he's not gonna bring it up again and he's not gonna look at you like that. He's gonna look at you based on his own righteousness. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can forgive people in our family the same way. Our homes aren't meant to be places where there's little landmines hidden around that you can't talk about or can't step on because there's massive decade-long unresolved conflict there. Conflict is like food in the fridge it's got to get taken care of, eaten, or thrown away in a certain amount of time, or it's going to start wrecking all of the other things in there. And forgiveness is God's mechanism for us to let go of all of those things, to move on. How do you know if you've forgiven someone? Well, if you bring it up to yourself, you haven't forgiven. If when you get in the car, the first thing you're thinking about is the thing that your wife or somebody said, and you already said, I forgive you, but you're still thinking about it, you haven't forgiven if you bring it up to yourself, and if you bring it up to other people, you haven't forgiven. If when you get on the phone with your sister, the first thing you want to talk about is the thing your husband did last week, you didn't actually forgive him. And the last one is uh, bringing it up to the person. If someone did something three or four years ago, and when you get in a conflict, that's the first thing you bring up, you have not truly forgiven that person. Those are three ways to know whether or not you have forgiven. Jesus has forgiven you completely and totally for everything you've ever done if you've asked him to do so. And God wants our homes to be places of complete and total forgiveness. What a wonderful picture that is of doing family conflict God's way where it's completely and totally gone. And then number five, we will have kind conflict. We will have kind conflict. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, if you've been in relationship with somebody for a long time, you certainly know what are the harsh words that are going to stir up their anger, right? Every teenager, you know the harsh words that you can say that will stir up your parents, right? You guys are just going to leave me up here. And act like when you were a teenager, you didn't know exactly what would irritate your mom and your dad? Okay, okay. The Bible says that a soft answer turns away wrath. When there is a family conflict, when there is a conflict where something is going badly, harsh words make it worse, soft words make it better. Let me give you some examples of those so it may help you. A harsh word is, you always do this. You always do this. A soft word is, I love you, but today this hurt my heart. A harsh word is, you never help me. You never help me. A soft word is, I'm sorry, but that was just too much. A harsh word is, you just don't love me like you used to. A soft word is, can we work this out? I know we're going to get it worked out. Can we work this out together? Do you see how harsh words make the conflict worse and soft words make the conflict easier? 
When you choose in your family to have kind conflict, when you choose in conflict to speak softly to each other, you are choosing to not make the conflict worse, and you are choosing to have conflict God's way. So that's the five, and I got five more. <laughs> five super fast tips. You ready for these ones? Okay. Five super fast tips. Number one, if you're yelling, you're losing. Did you know that? Did you know that if you're yelling at your kids, you're losing? But I'm right. I know. Parents are almost always right. You're losing. If you're stuffing, you're losing. Stuffing means when you get angry and then instead of talking about it or verbalizing it or saying something, you just push it down inside and then you don't understand why you cry when you are driving alone. Other cultures are really good at dealing with uh, anger and things like that. In ancient Israel culture, they would put dirt on their head, put a burlap sack on for clothes, sit in the dirt in the middle of the hot sun when they were depressed. They'd be like, I'm going to look like the way that I feel. We're like a Snuggie, ice cream, Netflix, and then I'll go to sleep with 30 minutes of unexplained crying. Um, <laughs> Stuffing doesn't make it better. If you're in an argument with your spouse, you can pop a couple NyQuil, and that will end the argument. <laughs> but you haven't really fixed anything, have you? Don't stuff. It doesn't do anything. If you're leaking, you're losing. That's just the way that I describe people who stuff. They end up getting their anger out in a certain way. It just is in a leak, like... An angry person or a, a, an intense person, when they get in a conflict, they're like, I'm going to slam the door and yell. A passive-aggressive person is like, I'm going to slam the door too. 0.1% at a time over the next 17 years. <laughs> and both of those, in their own way, are just as awful. Number four, if multiple people give you the same feedback, they're probably either very manipulative or correct. Take it for what it's worth. Number five, ignoring conflict doesn't work. Ignoring conflict, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. No conflict gets better with time when you leave it alone. And what we find when we do conflict God's way is that God changes generations of our family for good. This is a picture of Jonathan Edwards he was the president of Princeton Theological Seminary in the 1700s, and it's said that he and his wife would take time to pray with each of their children each day, which doesn't sound that impressive until you find out that he had 11 children. And he prayed with each of them every day. And there was a man that lived in New York around the same time that Jonathan Edwards lived in New York. His name was Max Jukes. And... Uh, Jonathan Edwards stood for everything the Bible stands for, all this kind of stuff we're talking about today. And Max Jukes was against those things. Max Jukes was in prison at the exact same time that Jonathan Edwards was preaching the gospel. And a historian found that they were both alive at the same time. They both had five generations of descendants and both of them had good enough family records that he could assess what happened to all of their fifth-generation descendants. So what happened between a person who chose, I'm going to do things God's way, and I'm going to do things my way? 
Now, what I'm not saying is that a person in jail is inherently worse than a person who's the president of a college. That's not what I'm talking about. Please don't hear me say that. I'm saying people who do things God's way versus people who don't. And here's what the historian found. He found that in Jonathan Edwards' fifth generation of descendants, maybe we could zoom in a little bit on that on the camera to help people who are sitting in the back row. That would be helpful. By the time their families had gone on five generations, they found that Jonathan Edwards' descendants had a vice president, three U.S. senators, 100 lawyers, 100 pastors, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 60 authors, 80 public servants, 75 military officers, 65 college professors, and 13 college presidents. And Max Jukes' fifth-generation descendants had 190 prostitutes, 100-plus alcoholics, seven convicted murderers, 150 criminals, and 310 people who died as paupers. Now hear me, I'll say it again. All of these people are the same at the ground of the cross. I'm not saying that your job makes you better than someone else. I'm saying look at what happens when you choose to do things God's way over choosing to do things your way. So we always think about the next Thanksgiving, the next holiday, the next argument. Think about 150 years from now when you've been in heaven for a long time and all the people that have come through your family line are walking around. You, by choosing to do family conflict God's way, can build one piece into an amazing legacy of saying, in our family, we do what God wants us to do. We don't do what we want to do. We do what God wants to do. We want to have conflict aggressively because we're like that, or we want to have conflict passive aggressively because we're like that, but we're not going to do that. We're going to do things the way God wants us to do them because we believe that Jesus tells us to do the things in the Bible. We're going to take communion in a moment. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing before that. But if you didn't get communion on your way in and you'd like some, our ushers are going to bring that to you while I pray if you'd raise your hand. So if you missed out on grabbing the items for communion, you go ahead and just keep your hand up. Someone will bring it over to you. Don't worry, they'll make it to you in the next minute or so. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his example of conflict and doing it God's way. God, I pray right now that if we have unforgiveness towards a person, that we would let it go and forgive them in the name of Jesus Christ. God, if we have bitterness towards someone and you've brought it to mind, I pray that we would let it go in the name of Jesus Christ. God, if we've led our families poorly, I pray that you would help us to lead it wisely in the name of Jesus Christ. God, if we've been too aggressive in our homes, give us enough humility to apologize and do things your way. God, if we've been passive aggressive and led our homes that way, would you help us to be honest and have the conflict and do things your way? Would you help us to do that, God? And as we leave today, would we not leave thinking that we need to do this in our own strength? Would we see that we have Christ with us? We have the Holy Spirit like the wind at our backs, helping us do the things that we need to do. God, where we failed, would we see that we have your forgiveness? And God, where we don't speak with grace, would you remind us of the grace with which you speak to us when you say, I love you? And would we speak graciously to others as a result? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
This is the table of new beginnings. These cups are full of love, and it's never ending. And at this table, there are no Just a loving father and his sons and daughters all are welcome at the table. There is a place just for you. No condemnation at the table. There is a place just for you.
I want to take a moment and read a passage of scripture that's found in Ephesians chapter 2. It's verse number 14, and I think it really hits on what Pastor Landon just talked about. Paul says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. I'd like to argue that he not only brought the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, but he broke down the dividing wall between husbands and wives, between brothers and sisters, between co-workers and neighbors, so that you and I won't have to live in a place and space of hostility, but we can live in a place and space of peace. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross so that you can, I can experience the Prince of Peace. And he and his disciples, they gathered together in the upper room, and they had taken bread. And if you have your elements, I want you to take the bread out. And Jesus looks at his disciples and said, this is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat the bread together. Then in the same manner, he takes the cup and says, this cup represents the blood that will be shed for the remission of your sins. As often as you drink it, you do this in remembrance of me. Let us drink together. Church, I want you to know that because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, that as a family, as a squad goal, we no longer have to live in hostility, but we can live in peace. If you're here today and you need prayer, your family needs prayer, I want to encourage you to come down front. There'll be a team of individuals who are ready to pray with you. But other than that, go in the peace of God, and we'll see you next week.